I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, I'm Neil White. And from Backpage, this is Between the Lines, a podcast that tells the stories behind great sports writing. My guest for this episode is James Montague, who returns to the show for a second time. If you haven't heard him talk about his brilliant piece on football inside North Korea, you should add that one to your queue. This time he's here to talk about his new book, 1312, Among the Ultras. Like James's previous books, When Friday Comes, 31 Nil and The Billionaires Club, 1312 is the result of this writer's determination to track down his story wherever it leads him. In this case, to just about every corner of the football world, from where he reports on the ultra culture, that hardcore of football fandom that we often see from the outside, but very rarely from within. And this is what makes Montague's book and his work in general remarkable. He just goes places other writers do not go. For this book, that meant getting chased by Swedish cops and machete-wielding Indonesian thugs and spending time in the company of bad men, one of whom, as you will hear, was assassinated three months after Montague interviewed him. This is also a brilliantly researched social and political history of a complex and far from uniform football culture. It's worth the cover price just for learning more about the origins of each region's ultras and how they interact with local and national politics and business and the clubs they support. But the colour and the personality of the book come from the on-the-road adventures that have earned James the tagline, the Indiana Jones of football. Listeners, this is recorded close to the start of increased measures to prevent the spread of COVID-19 here in the United Kingdom And we are all, wherever we are, going through some stuff at the moment. So if you are listening to this during this peculiar time, consider this our small message of solidarity and support with you all. Martin and I at Backpage are going to try to produce as many interesting podcasts as we can. He has just become a father for the second time, so it may be a little tougher for him. And I hope wherever you are, that you and those around you are safe and well. I was staggered to learn about how the crisis had affected James Montague, so I began this interview by asking him to explain for you the position he now finds himself in. I'm a freelance writer, journalist. I mean, I live in Belgrade with my partner, who's also a correspondent uh, for NOS, which is like the Dutch BBC, and we live there with with my daughter. Uh, But we're in the middle of moving to... Istanbul, where she's just taken up the correspondent, uh, Turkey correspondent job, which is a big promotion for her. And so we were in the middle of moving country via Holland, uh, whilst my book came out, 1312 Among the Ultras, which uh, came out the week before we were supposed to move. And slap bang in the middle of this pandemic, uh, this pandemic lands, and we've basically been separated now. So she's in Istanbul. Um, it's very, very, very difficult for her to leave. There aren't many flights. And from Friday, there won't be any flights. So you're taking a risk on landing in a third country with which could shut at any moment. 
we couldn't go back to Belgrade uh, because there was a lockdown there and a curfew and our visas ran out like a week after we were supposed to be there because we were just going to go to pack up all our stuff. So we couldn't go there. If we go to Turkey, when we had the opportunity, we would have been put in 14 days quarantine in a government facility. So that wasn't an option. And Mitra and, and me and my partner, we had a discussion about whether she should come back anyway um, to England. There probably was an opportunity a few days ago. But also we're both journalists and you have to kind of be where the story is. And um, she was incredibly um, supportive of me during the period of writing 1312, which was a very intense period, a lot of travel, a lot of writing, um, long periods where, you know, I wasn't around. So so I guess this is my opportunity to kind of repay the favour. Um, she desperately wants to be reunited, of course, with me and my daughter. But, I mean, this is a dilemma. Journalists aren't emergency workers they're not frontline workers in that way but given what's happening around the world with how politicians are seemingly using this as an excuse as a power grab you know you need the fourth estate to be telling people what's happening you need eyes on the ground in places it's hard for us but i'm incredibly proud of her that she's there doing what she thinks is a public service which it is i bet you are being where the story is is a fairly good theme i think stop me if i miss anywhere out okay croatia Uruguay, Argentina, Brazil, Italy, Greece and Macedonia, Albania and Kosovo, Ukraine, Germany, Sweden, Turkey, Indonesia, USA. Uh, Poland, there's a little bit about Poland that doesn't doesn't have its own chapter, but I mentioned about Poland in there. Uh, Morocco, Egypt, a um, little bit on Tunisia and Algeria, although I didn't go, I didn't visit Algeria. Oh, I did visit Algeria, but not to, not to watch a match, that's for a different thing. Uh, so there's, yeah, there's quite a few little stops and there's a there's a load of chapters that I, I didn't include as well um for instance you know i was going to write a chapter about romania um and i had all that stuff but it was getting 400 pages and it was getting so big and also of course the uk which isn't renowned for its ultra culture but everywhere that i went around the world you know it was very clear that english hooligan culture which alongside the Badas Bravas from Argentina, the Torcida from Brazil and the Ultras from Italy, you know, played a really important role in influencing how Ultras are seen today, even though there isn't really an English hooligan culture anymore. Um, it's mostly lived vicariously through the, you know, works of Danny Dyer and um, Green Street hooligans, which is incredibly popular. I mean, I've, you know, I, I, I did not meet anybody who hadn't watched that film and hadn't really could have like, liked it. And where it's, it's kind of seen as, you know, it has quite a negative, not negative, but it's like, you know, you've got The Hobbit playing the lead role in it, which is quite implausible. Let's get to 1312. For listeners who are unclear as to why these digits uh, appear on the, on the front page of your book, what does it all mean? It's a number code, alphabet number code, that corresponds to ACAB, ACAB, which means all cops are bastards, which is like a long long time kind of anti-police anti-authority slur that kind of emerges from Victoria and England from the underworld and has been adopted a lot you know in the 70s by the hooligan movement by punks um whether whether left or right whichever political persuasion just being in the kind of anti-authority number code and this code was something that I saw on pretty much every single stadium I went anywhere in the world I mean I remember seeing 1312 uh, on the main stadium in Sarajevo it didn't matter where it was whether it was Casablanca Moscow Tokyo I would see this number the ultras are extremely heterogeneous kind of 
you know, phenomenal. In, in some ways, they are very uniform in terms of they look, the aesthetic is very much rooted in the Italian aesthetic of the kind of late 60s onwards with the colour and the fire and the choreography and the, and the pyrotechnics. But also, I mean, it's such a different group in terms of politics and outlook. But one thing, one thread that I found throughout everywhere was that there was this universal uh, hatred of the police, hatred of authority and the kind of absolute um, need to be kind of an outsider from normal societal control. And so 1312 for me was, you know, it was very difficult to define what an ultra was the more I got into it. But I did find it quite easy to find to define what they're against. So I felt that it was from the beginning, it was always going to be called this. And I mean, to be honest, I was a little worried that it would get, you know, that the publisher wouldn't allow me to do that because in some countries you can be arrested for tweeting a cab. For instance, there was a Croatian journalist that recently was arrested and fined for tweeting a cab because of an issue with the police. And, you know, in Germany, there was a series of court cases about whether whether somebody should be arrested for wearing that. Uh, somebody was arrested, took it to the highest court, and they eventually decided that because it's not directed at an individual police officer, it's fine. But there is, there has been, you'd be arrested if you wore an ACAB 1312 t-shirt in Moscow, for instance. Listen, you mentioned the struggle to define what an ultra is, and you kind of have a couple of stabs at it during the the course of the book and I thought the guy that they got closest to a definition that really made sense of everything that I was reading about was Contucci who's the Italian lawyer um, who I think are you, are you speaking to him when he's in his hospital bed? Yeah I'm literally we have an interview lined up with this guy and he's a famous lawyer a famous ultra from Rome uh, from Roma um, on the Curvasud and long-time figure within within the curve. And he's a guy who, over the years, he's also a smart guy and he studies law. And when the police begin to crack down on the ultras, really in the mid-2000s, early to mid-2000s, and they bring in these things called the defide, which is a kind of like a banning order. Contucci um, experiences this himself. He gets um, arrested and someone tries to put a banning order on him and he's been studying law and he decides to challenge these banning orders um, and finds out that it's so inelegantly uh, drafted that he can actually quite easily overturn them. So he then, that becomes his main business, that he then becomes effectively a lawyer for ultras to challenge the defeated, uh, which is which, which is brilliant. And then he, he hires other journalists, uh, sorry, other um, lawyers who have backgrounds as being ultras as well. So he's a, he has he had a really incredible insight into what it meant to be an ultra, what what the ultras were in their peak in Italy in the 1980s and, and early 1990s. Um, but it was we had this interview lined up and then we heard that he'd had an accident on his on his motorbike. And he said, oh, no, but you can come and visit me. So we go to the hospital and I wasn't prepared to see it. He was just he was literally in his gown. Uh, in his in his hospital bed with his leg hitched up with with a plaster cast on it like taking phone calls left right left and right all the time like it was just like nothing was going to slow this guy down you know and uh, he was a fascinating character and he you know he had several definitions and i think what was it he quoted morrissey uh, which is a bit dodgy these days but he quoted morrissey and said you know the, the hooligans i mean ultras which are two very different things, but he mentions them both. But ultras are the kind of patriots of the city. Yeah, I mean, the one that I was trying to remember in in detail was he, he describes the life of the ultra as 24-hour a day, seven-day-a-week 
existence. It's something that these people put at the centre of their lives. That's the origins of where the word comes from. I mean, ultra means to go beyond, to go beyond what's normally expected. And, you know, from the Latin and, and then in the Italian, and that's what it is. It's to, to 24 hours a day, seven days a week to go beyond to go beyond what normally would be expected to be a supporter. And so that is very, you know, that's that's the, almost a, the, the classical definition of what ultra is. It's interesting that he mentions Morrissey because there's kind of like a broad culture that has eventually gotten him into trouble, which is a sort of romanticised version of gangs. There's an element of that in all of these stories too, but there's so much different. Like pop culture is viewed differently from group to group in this book. So is politics or the relationships between the groups and politics, local politics and national politics. Violence and the relationship, you know, the way they view violence. All of this changes from country to country, it seems to me. But then there's also this kind of core right at the heart of it all that's similar, this sense of like belonging and that these groups give these predominantly men something in their lives that otherwise wouldn't be there. Absolutely. And, you know, the issue of of the politics and the violence, I mean, there's there's one of the things that was always over the years of of being, you know, around ultra culture was the idea that politics is something that ultras shunned and that violence was something that was over written about because journalists you know if it if it bleeds it leads you know they'll they'll only be there when something really bad happens not when something good happens um and i mean but there was a there's a there's a case for for both of those thoughts i mean violence was kind of very central to a lot of what i saw and what i experienced um but so was politics politics was 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 everywhere in in the ultra culture not just in um, I mean, if you go somewhere like Germany, for instance, you know, I mean, these guys are activists. I mean, they're, they're, they they can be for seemingly small issues, like or seemingly local trivial issues, like Monday night football or like the equivalent of the 20s plenty, like having low ticket prices for away games, those kind of things. But then you move, there's also like far bigger societal issues going on. I mean, we saw this with Hoffenheim, and uh, what happened with the fans of Bayern Munich and other fans from Borussia Dortmund, ultras from Borussia Dortmund, really abusing and, um, you know, bringing kind of hellfire down on Dietmar uh, Hopp, the, the the billionaire owner of Hoffenheim, and also on RB Leipzig as well. And that's all down to the fact that whether you're a left-wing or right-wing ultra, and there is that dichotomy in, or there is that spectrum in German football, um, you know, these guys are campaigning to maintain quite a complicated to understand issue, 50 plus one, like a method of ownership within uh, or a bureaucratic method of ownership within German football. And it's it's that's a really like you, it's really difficult to motivate people to vote on issues that aren't very simplistic. Yet you have this culture that has united and campaigned and campaigned very successfully to maintain something which has kept their power within German football. And then you go to somewhere like Ukraine and you see, you know, the ultras there, a lot of them connected to the far right. A lot of them play a role in the Maidan Square, uh, Maidan Revolution in 2014 that that takes Yanukovych from power. And, you know, they then become veterans of the war. They come back and they, some of them even go into politics. And, I, you know, I follow these guys, some of them, you know, almost certainly neo-Nazis. Some of them, it's a bit more you know, a bit more of a grey area. Uh, but yeah, it was the, the idea that, 
um, that politics and violence are things that, or, the, or what I should say is the the relationship between the terrorists, which is very very um, reflective of the society that it finds itself in, and the politics of that country in 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 a, in a myriad of different ways. But it was always there. The connection was always there. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So this, as you know, is a process podcast. So I wanted to talk more about the process First of all, can you give us an idea of the, the time scale? It feels like I was talking to you about this book maybe 18 months, maybe even longer than that, maybe a couple of years ago. When did, when did you start the work and how long did the travel take? From getting a, putting a pitch together to, get to, to finishing the book was probably about two and a half years. Um, but the idea had been bubbling around for a long time. I just needed to be in the right place to do it because something like this... Um, one of the reasons why we know nothing or very little about the ultras is there's been very little written in the English language um, about them. I mean, there's been a couple of books this year, um, uh, Tobias Jones's book Ultra, about Italy in particular being a case in point. Very good book that is as well. Um, but there's been very little written about it. And part of that is access. And part of that is the fact that being a journalist is considered being as bad as being a member of the police. So you are shunned and you are an outsider. And so it's taken me about, you know, all of the um, experience and contacts that I've made around the world over the past 10, 15 years. Only now could I get anywhere approaching the kind of access I thought I needed to do a story, to, to tell the story that I wanted to tell and have the experience needed to tell that story. So, yeah, it was a two and a half year process, although there was a lot of trial and error because a lot of groups said no. I would turn up in a lot of places and they'd say no um, after arranging something. I mean, I've, I've tried to keep those stories out because, I mean, you know, so, sometimes they're not interesting. In one case in Morocco, um, I explain how I arranged to meet the leaders of Raja Casablanca and that doesn't happen to give an example of, of just how tenuous it is, you know, you, often you're relying on one person who knows one person who knows one person, a kind of like honor system that, because it's, it's such a, it's a scene that feels so under threat that if you let in someone that, you know, writes bad about you or is, is an undercover police officer or whatever, the people that have said, yeah, this is a good guy, they're out, they're out. 
it was difficult to get access to, but it really came together like throughout 2019 was at the first half of 2019 that was the bulk of the travel at end of 2018 till till about june um suddenly a lot of it came together at the same time uh the trip to south america uh ukraine in particular which is a big challenge i went back three or four times to germany um in december 2018 so you know with all of these things i i plan out a book that I know will be vaguely, or this book in particular, I planned out for it to be vaguely chronological because you can you can chart ultras kind of beginning in Italy in the late in the late sixties, and then it kind of spreads all through through Europe really, and then North Africa and Asia and South America is is a kind of pre periods where you know these groups exist before then, and, and there's an influence going back and forth um, in the very early days of kind of globalization. So yeah, it was it was um, it was quite a complicated book to do, but it was also this was the only way you could do it. You could only it's not really something you could do by by a desk, you know. I mean the amount, the amount of journal, um, ultra groups that said no, I'm not doing a Skype interview. You've got to do it face to face because there's almost a kind of an anti technology thing as well. Um, and you know, above all else, they prize their anonymity and they they don't know who they're talking to if they're talking down at the end of the phone so they they have to see you know the whites of your eyes so it was in many ways it was also a very old fashioned book like that the travel was one part of it but you mentioned access there as well which is absolutely key it's funny because there's not much football in your book no. James A but in some in some ways it does share um a key challenge that faces all really great football straight football writing which is access how did you develop the technique to identify who you should be speaking to and then to gain access to these people who relish their life in the shadows? Well, I had an idea, like a fairly decent idea about the structure of the book and the countries that I wanted to visit. I mean, there are some countries that, for instance, I went to Russia uh, when I went for the World Cup in 2018, thinking that I could meet some uh, of the ultra groups there. Uh, even though there weren't any games on, you know, go and see it. There'd, there'd still be some arranged fights going on or see what's going on. And I discovered that they'd all basically been told to leave the cities uh, just in case they make any trouble for for Putin's World Cup. You know, um, they're, use, they're a useful political tool uh, often for a lot of political figures in Russia. But, you know, they wanted to avoid all all embarrassment. So they so there wasn't anything on Russia for instance, um, Poland, I wrote a story for the New York Times about Wisła Krakow and the club essentially being taken over by their kind of hooligan ultra firm because the, the line between the two is a bit blurred in Poland. Um, and then once that came out, I mean, all all kind of doors were then shut to me pretty much. So I had a, I had a rough idea of, of the places. I knew Eastern Europe would be very important. I knew the Balkans would be very important. And I was living there. Um, Germany... Uh, North Africa. I spent seven years pretty much on and off covering how the ultras had been a kind of revolutionary force in Egypt. When I spoke to the guys at Freiburg, they're guys I knew from the Akhlawi who were, who were the ultras of Al-Akhli because they had a friendship together. So often if there was a friendship between a group, then they would introduce you to the other group or there'd be people that I've met over the years who were once ultras but had then you know done the unthinkable and become journalists and had maintained their you know that kind of outlook on the game but couldn't really ever be part of that scene anymore because it's very difficult being an ultra and a journalist um so and then there are there are some people i was extremely lucky to meet um 
you know, I met one filmmaker in Ukraine who I knew that I wanted to tell the story about the the ultras and their involvement in Maidan and how important that was. And it was only through blind luck that he introduced me to Sergei Filimanov, who it turns out was this guy who'd be, who's been groomed for political office in Kiev as part of the National Corps, which is a kind of far right ultra nationalist political party. Um, but he was a, he was quite a compelling character. But it was only by blind luck that I was introduced to him. So I didn't go there saying that I was going to find him. He, um, my my friend introduced me to him. Um, and there was another. I mean, Martino uh, Simcic Eresi, who's works for Copper Ninety. Uh, who I'm sure you've seen some of his work. I mean, he has exceptional contacts in Italy and it was through him that we meet kind of, we managed to meet Il Boccia, who's, he's like a, like a Robin Hood character of like just this incredible, after speaking to a lot of kind of fascists and people involved with organized crime, this guy was really the, the purest capotifosi I've ever come across. He, he runs or nominally runs the ultras of uh, Atalanta in Bergamo, uh, but he's been banned from the stadiums for 26 years for a a variety of fences. Um, But then at the same time, we also got to meet through, through uh, Tino Diabolic, Fabrizio Piccitelli, who's the, you know, or was the leader of the Iriducibli in Lazio, who were the far right, you know, open fascists pretty much. And um, yeah, we, it was it, his skill and diplomacy in the Italian fan scene really kind of opened opened the door. So it was it was about trying to find the right uh, contacts and the right way in because it's not something you can just phone up and say I'm doing this. You need somebody needed to vouch for you at every every kind of level of security you wanted to get past. Somebody had to vouch for you, and if they couldn't vouch for you, then you weren't going anywhere. I remember towards the end of your, I think you were maybe writing this book actually and I remember one of the concerns that you had at that time was around the ethics of how you presented your meetings with people who you don't want to uh, validate in any way what they're saying or their or their beliefs so how did you eventually come to view your sort of ethical approach to writing this? Well I thought by being scrupulously honest about what happened the moment where I meet Diabolic well, he gets out of the car, everybody gives a straight arm Roman salute. You know, when we do the interview, he's next to a portrait of Mussolini. When we talk, he's unrepentantly racist, anti-Semitic. You know, he is a, he's, he's a man with extremist political views, but he's also a man who's absolutely central to understanding how powerful ultras could become and what became of the ultras in Italy. One of the reasons why we ended up actually having a two-hour conversation was he was so used to people coming and asking him about the violence and about the racism and about uh, just, you know, but kind of in a positive way, like tell tell us your greatest hits kind of thing, that when I started asking questions about like, why, you know, where did you come from? Why did you begin this? What is it? It made people want me to tell their story, but also, you know, when I think of the, the writers and the journalists that have influenced me the most, you know, people like, I mean, I always remember reading them by John Ronson. He meets, you know, people like travels with extremists, you know, he meets people with extremist political views, but you want to tell the world how, how it is and not how you want it to be. And so I was always like, this is how it is. If you want to understand this world, these people are part of it and you have to understand how they became that way and where this, uh, you know, these, these politics and these views come from. And I, I'd hoped that by writing this and by being honest about, even to the point of 
writing about how when I came out of the diabolic interview with Martino, we were kind of, you know, I even write about this, how we were elated. You know, there was a, there was a, there was an adrenaline rush from, from being, you know, in, in proximity to somebody who's, you know, would be objectively quite a dangerous man. I mean, he was assassinated three months later, shot in the head in a park because probably because of his, his involvement in organized crime. And we're not entirely sure yet what the real reason for that was. And I remember recalling this story about Martino's, a friend of Martino's comes later and we have, we're having a drink in a bar in, in, in Rome. And he was, he couldn't believe that it was almost like we just talked to like a film star or something like almost like a heady conversation we were having. Cause, and it, and, and then it was like, I had to pause and I thought I'd, I've lost sight of that for a minute, but you've got to be honest that that's what's happening. And, and then you correct that by being okay. Well, the, the, what was he saying? And you realize how easily you can be swept up and how easily things are normalized. I mean, violence was completely normalized for me uh, during the writing of this book. I mean, in a way it's been kind of normalized my entire uh, career. I mean, there's, I've been in a lot of places where there's been a lot of civil disobedience, not a lot of football, um, but you know, so it's not, it's no surprise. I mean, none of my books really have a lot of football in them. It turns out I'm terrible about writing about football. Uh, like if I write a match report, it's, it's just awful. Like some people are fantastic at it, but I'm abysmal at writing a match report. So um, I end up writing about everything else that's around it. And so this is, this is part of that, but the ethical consideration, the moral cons- consideration, even to the point where, I get involved in the arranged fighting scene in Sweden and and I explain my feeling after that. And it's a strange feeling because I won't ruin it, but I mean, it does involve kind of a chase from the police and I, I kind of escape. But there is there is an enjoyment to that and there's an enjoyment about getting away with it. And I, I just thought it's much better. Why hide that? That's If you understand how I'm feeling, then you understand why they're doing it. There's something in that scene in Sweden that is maybe the reason that you ended up writing about this. I've heard you describe in the past, I'm not sure if you mentioned it in the book, being drawn to this side of fan culture from quite an early age. You know, it's, it's, it's the lure that eventually is going to take the guys who you're writing about into that world. I didn't, I didn't grow up in care or anything, but I mean, I, I did, you know, have quite a difficult growing up period i mean i got into a lot of trouble with the police i was um frequently expelled from school um i was always drawn to that to the to the dangerousness of uh, terrorist culture i mean i was never i was too young to know any faces or anything but we would go to the north bank in the early 90s and just stand there just to be amongst that in that that weight that you if anyone could remember from the old days of terrorist support in the you know in English football that weight of people around you that swayed and it was it was it was a very dangerous but exhilarating kind of mass movement to be part of even if I was only you know like a little rat running around around their feet but you know also having that experience with the police at young age and being very honest with myself about what it is that I enjoyed which is the adrenaline rush of of being chased and when I was speaking to Hugo who's the leader of one of the firms one of the biggest firms in Sweden I recognised the connection between why he was doing what he was doing and why I did what I did. It was, we were, we were chasing the same drug, but we just found different ways of doing it. And, you know, he was a very switched on articulate guy, but he, he was, he was, he really got off on organised ultraviolence. And that's, that's his thing. And that's his world. And outside of that, he leads a pretty law abiding, mostly law abiding life. Um, 
but it was i thought it was important as again to be completely honest about how i was feeling in all those situations because um i don't know there's there's a kind of conceit that uh that you could be moralistic about it afterwards and i didn't want to be moralistic i wanted i wanted people to see that you know even you know someone who has the most liberal credentials you know can fall for that ironically which is the message of green street hooligans <laughs> which is ultimately a, a, a film about you know how men are attracted no matter where background they're from there is an intrinsic attraction for men towards men and violence you know i mean and so it, it kind of it kind of goes full circle but it was there's the other part of this all of course is that you can't write about any of this unless you're you're in the middle of it, you know, I, as far as I'm concerned, it's such a visual and such a proximate scene that you have to be there. You can't write this from your desk. You can't write this over the phone. All right. That's, that's absolutely fantastic. We're back to the start. Okay. You know, you do, you have to be there. You have to be in the story. And I would say there is a chunk of this book, maybe even something approaching half of it. That is a fantastically well-researched look at, this culture all over the world and it contains social history and political history and pop culture history and all of this but that is blended so well with the stuff that you got on the ground the stuff that you can only get on the ground and that's what that's what makes this this book stands out but also it's what makes all my favorite sports writing stand stand out you know you have to know your stuff but you have to go and get your stuff as well right you have to, and you know we're in lockdown now in in Lowestoft in the east of England, very beautiful part of the world, beautiful beaches. I mean, I'm not from around here, but mum and dad retired here, and you know I I look back at that period last year, which was really tough at times, and beautiful at other times. Being isolated in eastern Serbia, writing it for a month was was also a very beautiful moment. But I wonder whether you know I have. I mean, I took advantage of it, but I wonder whether this is the end of like the golden age of globalized travel. And I wonder if I'll ever be able to write a book like this or certainly when I could even think about it. I mean, I was even thinking before I'm 40, maybe I should, you know, I've, I've got lucky to really nothing really bad has happened to me. I've got into a few scrapes and got away with it. Maybe I should quit while I'm ahead. Uh, but uh, looking at how the world is, I mean, maybe maybe that decision has been taken for me, you know, and. And maybe I won't be able to do a book like this again. And maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. But it's, yeah, it's, it's weird looking back at this. And, and uh, you know, I'm not even able to really travel out of this town. So my world has become, you know, a few weeks ago, my world was the world. And now it's my world is 100, 100 metres in diameter. And, you know, that's quite a scary thing. It is. Just lastly, James, I wonder what your aim was when you started out i wonder what story you wanted to tell and whether or not by the end of it that's the story that you ended up telling i hope so the story i, w I wanted to tell was that this wasn't a one-dimensional scene that was uh only racist only violent only um unthinking i think that's the thing that really got me because everywhere that i went you know i would see the intelligence the activism the barbarism, um, everything good and bad about the curve, but it was it was such a, a unique space, such a unique political space. I'd seen revolutions come from the terraces in North Africa and in Ukraine, and in you know to a lesser extent, but certainly civil civil process, a civic process in 
Turkey and in and, and in Morocco and places like that. And the way that the media really uh, followed and reported on on ultras, it was it was like these are just there is nothing there's no redeeming features. And I wanted to show that this is a rich and vibrant culture that has uh, has its problems, but it it also has uh, a lot of solidarity and a lot of the lessons that they're a lot of the battles they're fighting are battles that a lot of people can can agree with against commercialization against earthquakes fires floods who's at the front those groups who because they're very extremely organized they're out there you know uh, paling water i mean even with this coronavirus at the moment atalanta fans atalanta ultras donated seventy five thousand euros for the money they would have spent going to the away games they donated it to a hospital you had the bad blue boys of dinamo kiev who uh, were, when there was an earthquake in Zagreb a couple of days ago, were at the maternity ward uh, with supplies and then helping to move everybody out. Uh, It's a a complicated and almost unknowable scene, but it's also one that is so rich and diverse that I just wanted to show that it isn't isn't one-dimensional. And I think, I hope, I hope I've achieved that. That's all for this episode of Between the Lines. Thanks to James Montague. His new book, 1312, Among the Ultras, is out now. As well as hard copies on Amazon and, of course, the ebook, there is an audiobook that James recorded himself. Why not check that out? This show is produced by Backpage. Our music is by Michael McGarry, and there'll be more Between the Lines soon. Goodbye for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.